Welcome back to Sweet Stories in the Dell. My name is Caperton Morton. I'm a Sweet Bar alum, and I write and produce this podcast in collaboration with the college. This is Episode 6, The Architecture of Ralph Adams Cram at Sweetbriar. Sweetbriar's marketing materials provide many examples of its unique qualities as an educational institution for women. Photographs of campus life grab the attention of young women all over the world as they imagine the next chapter of their lives. But there's nothing like visiting the stunning campus grounds in person to imagine becoming a Sweetbriar woman. And you don't need to know a thing about architecture to marvel how well the built environment melds with the rolling Virginia landscape. The recent additions of the vineyards, apiary, and wildflower fields only makes it easier to picture how Sweetbriar may have looked just prior to its founding, when it was just acres and acres of forests, pasture, hay and crop fields, and orchards, too. This was the setting in 1901, when two men, Sweetbriar Institute board member Dr. John McBride Sr., and Boston architect Ralph Adams Cram walked Sweetbar's land together. They were in search of the most advantageous placement for the Sweetbar campus. They found it along the ridge running southeast from Sweetbar House, the home of Sweetbar founder Indiana Fletcher Williams. And 115 years later, the expansive grassy dell sweeping down from this ridge top continues to uplift our historic Ralph Adams Cram campus. In fact, the Sweetbar College Historic District was established in 1995 by the Virginia Landmarks Register and the National Register of Historic Places. This includes 21 of our Cram structures. For this episode, I gleaned pertinent information from three main sources full of interesting details chronicling the college's earliest years. One is The Story of Sweetbriar, a book written by Martha Lou Lemon Stolman, class of 1934. Another is an article by alumna Margaret Bannister, class of 1916. She wrote it in 1976 for the 75th anniversary edition of the Alumni Magazine. The other is the booklet Sweetbar College and Ralph Adams Cram, Dreams and Reality. It was written by Dr. Eileen Lang, Professor Emerita of Art History and a member of Sweetbar's Class of 1957. I'll further introduce Dr. Lang shortly. First, a quick summary of the college's earliest years. When Indiana Fletcher Williams, or Miss Indy, passed away, in October of 1900, her will was left in trust with four men, three of whom were local clergymen, the Reverends Carson, Gray, and Randolph. The will directed them to add three more men to create the first board of directors of Sweetbriar Institute. One was a judge from Portsmouth, another the Reverend Carl Grammer from Philadelphia, and the other was Dr. John McBride Sr., McBride had been a professor of agriculture before becoming the fifth president of Virginia Polytechnic Institute, now called Virginia Tech. As a sidebar, McBride's son, Dr. John McBride Jr., taught English at Sweetbriar from 1906 to 1909, 
and McBride Sr. enlisted his son to design the college seal. After the board fought major challenges contesting Miss Cindy's will, the Sweetbriar Institute Charter was granted in 1901. And though four of the seven board members were clergymen, the education tenor of Sweetbriar would follow the opinions that McBride presented at the first board meeting on April 22nd of 01. The minutes reflect that McBride was a proponent of combining, and I quote, the Northern College's focus on intellectual pursuits with the practical education of Western and Southern normal and industrial schools, unquote, from Dreams and Reality. Before the end of the meeting, McBride was voted in as chairman of the executive committee. It seems that McBride was impressed by an article Boston architect Ralph Adams Cram wrote for The Churchman. The article's introduction begins in part with, Art is the measure of civilization. If we have not an art that is instinctive, the natural expression of a healthy people, we do not possess a genuine vital civilization, This core belief may have inspired McBride to invite Cram to Virginia, and Cram's acceptance of the invitation could have been his familiarity with the Mecklenburg County, Virginia area, home to his wife, Elizabeth Carrington Cram, Nee Reed. Cram's visit to Sweetbriar led to the selection of his architectural firm, Cram, Goodhue, and Ferguson, to design the campus. In the board minutes of August 1901, their third meeting, McBride presented several plans submitted by the firm. The plans indicate the general placement of the campus and sketches of the first two dormitories, Gray and Grammar, and an academic building. While I was on campus, I met separately with two architectural historians who thoroughly understand the importance of Cram's work. In response to the 2015 attempted closure of the college, architectural historian Travis McDonald wrote the commentary, The Architectural Significance of Sweetbar College. I'm Travis McDonald. I'm an architectural historian been working on the restoration of Virginia Museum houses for 40 or so years. And for the last 31 years, I've been directing the restoration of Thomas Jefferson's retreat, Poplar Forest. This being a nationally significant collection of buildings, I was just raising the question, well, you know, what are you going to do with these buildings, the stuff in the library, What are you going to do with the landscape? Because there's even more maintenance required in vacant buildings. Most local people and even uh, other Virginians probably have never been here and didn't know anything about the quality and the significance of the buildings. They just knew it as a college for women. Travis explains that there were two ways to learn architecture in the latter part of the 19th century. One way was to go to Paris and to attend the École des Beaux-Arts, or the School of Fine Arts. The other way to learn architecture was to apprentice yourself to a firm, which Cram did. He apprenticed with a Boston firm whose partners Roch and Tilden were Beaux-Arts-trained architects. That's B-E-A-U-X, capital A-R-T-S. Beaux-Arts design is really the method of design. And it's a very 
you know, systematic way to place buildings together in addition to how you design an individual building. And if you are a well-trained Beaux-Arts architect, as I said, it doesn't matter what style you're choosing, you know how to design it and, and put numerous buildings together. So the Virginia tradition started by Jefferson is a linear axis with a major building on the end. And a lot of early colleges, UNC, South Carolina, Union College, they start following that prototype of one axis. The Beaux-Arts tradition is one, two, three, multiple axes that are defining different groups of buildings. So there's kind of a nexus right here at at this moment with cram and with college design. Beaux-Arts and the City Beautiful movement on display in Chicago at the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 both promoted beauty, harmony, and order. Architects worldwide, including Cram, began to reflect these movements in their designs. But right before Sweetbriar, uh, you have these big, notable campus designs. Stanford, Columbia, College of New York, West Point. It was 1900 that Cram Goodyear Ferguson wins the master plan to design and what makes them similar is this Beaux-Arts party of buildings that aren't necessarily identical, but they're arranged symmetrically with strong axes and uh, vistas. So if you look at Cram's earliest designs for Sweetbriar, it's really overblown. You know, he was given the architect's favorite job, which is starting from scratch. You know, other colleges had earlier buildings and people had to work with them. Sweetbriar was a tabula rasa. So Cram, Cram Goodhue Ferguson, it's not surprising that they do this Beaux-Arts party. It's just that they had already started working in Gothic. You know, the story is that Cram's wife, who was from Virginia, influenced him to do a more traditional style. Cram latched on to, you know, masterful use of Gothic, really. And as I said here, it's a masterful use of English, Georgian. But Sweetbriar puts them in the news, and they then get these commissions to do Rice University and Richmond College, which became the University of Richmond. Now I introduce architectural historian Eric Kuchar. My name is Eric Kuchar. I'm a senior project manager at Misa Cohen Wilson Baker Architects. We have an office that I work out of in Williamsburg, Virginia, and our main office is in Albany, New York. The firm's been around for close to 40 years now. We focus on restoration, historic preservation, and adaptive reuse. We do some new design work on new buildings, but our primary focus has been working on some of America's most treasured cultural institutions around the country. And we've also spent a lot of time working on major museums here in Virginia, including Monticello, Poplar Forest, uh, Montpelier, and Mount Vernon. And um, we're, we're very, very happy to be here at Sweetbriar. 
because of our deep understanding in historical buildings, especially through the Mid-Atlantic and through New England, when we work on these types of projects, we take it to a very deep intellectual level. It's not just about looking at a building. It's looking at the history, the artifact. It's looking at the documentary evidence that's already been created. It's drawings, it's photographs, it's images. It's all of this data that we can synthesize as far as looking at the building in today's eyes to make sure that either they're up to code or looking at issues with those buildings. So we've, we've been doing that on a lot of major college campuses for, for many years now. Another college campus where Misick Cohen Wilson Baker Architects, or MCWB, has been working is Florida Southern College. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. I asked Eric if he had known about Ralph Adams Cram before coming to campus. I did know Ralph Adams Cram. He spent most of his career in Boston. But I did not know of his influence here and work at Sweetbriar. Ralph Adams Cram was born in 1863 in Hampton Falls, New Hampshire. In 1881, he began apprenticing for the Boston architectural firm of Roch and Tilden. Five years later, he moved to Rome, where he studied classical architecture. Then in 1887, at the age of 24, Cram opened Cram and Wentworth, his first architectural firm. Later, architect Bertram Goodhue was added, and in 1897, the firm added draftsman Frank Ferguson, creating the Cram, Goodhue, and Ferguson firm. And beginning in 1914, Cram taught architecture at MIT for the next seven years. He also served as vice president of the American Institute of Architects and president of the Boston Society of Architects. He would have been a star-architect, as, as we call them today, you know, star-architect. And he was well-regarded in the early 1900s, along with a lot of other folks, Burnham and Root and H.H. H. Richardson and McKim Mead and White. They were all doing really amazing classical design work, a lot of this Beaux-Arts architecture. And uh, his legacy here is incredible. I had no idea how much wonderful, detailed work is here at Sweetbriar until we really got into it. The most incredible feature that you have on this campus right now is that if you walk out of any of the buildings in the main historic campus and you stand on the landscape and you look back, you could basically close your eyes and open them and it would feel like 1910. So much of the heritage and the building fabric is still here. It's not been modified heavily. There's not large additions on buildings everywhere. And there's so many of these character-defining features. That's what the National Register nominations all discuss. And these buildings still retain 90% of those features. And the features that are missing, that have been deteriorated and fallen off, balustrades and things like that. The wonderful thing is that we have drawings now, and we have photographs, and we can figure out where those pieces belong. And eventually, would be wonderful to be, you know, as, as funding comes in and things like that, that we can start putting those pieces back. Because so much of the original building is still there. Travis mentions that American colleges are rather distinctive from day one in their relationship with the surrounding countryside. This is a comparison with the European tradition of founding big universities in city centers. 
He says that the Latin term campus is a perfect description of American colleges because its earliest meaning, which has been corrupted, means field. Sweetbriar, you know, uh, by virtue of its site, is in this beautiful setting that couldn't be ignored. So when Cram is doing this big urban type design, Beaux-Arts party of putting all the buildings in the landscape, eventually it's Gillette, landscape architect, who tries to influence him and does. And there's a Sweetbriar alum. This Sweetbriar alumna, Elsetta Gilchrist Barnes, class of 1927, also designed some of the gardens on campus. After graduating from Sweetbriar, Elsetta went on to the Cambridge School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture for postgraduate work in landscape design. She graduated in 1932. As a side note, the Cambridge School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, which is affiliated with Harvard, was the first graduate program of its kind to accept women. Travis also mentions a Mr. Gillette. Charles Gillette was a well-known landscape architect from Richmond, Virginia. Now back to Eric, talking about the evolution of Sweetbar's campus. If you look at numerous campuses, they've just added buildings everywhere because they just keep running out of square footage. And it's exciting. It's the architect's dream and to start off with a, a, almost a blank slate and create this vision and see it happen quickly. You know, it's, it's, it's not taking hundreds of years to come together. And, you know, it, this is rural Virginia, and it, it must have been quite an undertaking, making lots and lots of bricks and all of these classical motifs. Um, it's, it's really an amazing feat. There's an article in the last Sweetbriar magazine called Preserving Sweetbriar's History, and I've read that MCWB has a proven method for performing condition assessments. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your process and how it unfolded at Sweetbriar. I've read that there were some challenges, but you had a hallelujah moment at some point. <laughs> As we start all of these projects when we do a conditions assessment, you know, it's, it's a multi-stage, multi-phase process, and we're really looking for a moment in time, and that time is right now. What is the condition of the building? Is it performing as it's supposed to? Is it up to code? Do we have big issues like water infiltration that could be deteriorating masonry or roofs or windows? But before we start, we need to really understand how the buildings were designed, how big are they, what are they used for, what were they originally designed for, how many changes have been made over time. So we try to get all of that sort of documentary evidence pulled together before we even step foot on the campus. So we always ask for original drawings or even existing drawings from previous rehabilitation projects. And we basically learned that there weren't really any drawings. And we were surprised, but it happens. So Well, okay, so in Ninety Lang's Dreams and Reality, there's pictures. Yes. Okay, so how'd they get those? Well, we looked into that. We were given a copy of the book, and we learned that a lot of the drawings, if not most of them, came from the Boston Public Library because Ralph Adams Cram has his archive of his original drawings up there in storage. 
So we contacted the library and wouldn't you believe it, they were doing a restoration of the main library space and they had taken all of those original drawings and they put them into locked storage and they told us that we wouldn't have any opportunity to look at them for at least two years. <laughs> um, <laughs> this was a major uh, heartbreak for all of us. So we, we sort of went back to square one. We started with basic emergency floor plans, which are almost line diagrams, and there's not a lot of information on it, but it gave us something to start with. So we spent about close to a week, week and a half out here going and looking at every single building, inside and out, roofs, basements, windows, doors, landscape, all of these features. And almost to the 11th hour of the project, uh, my colleague Patton and I were down in the power plant of all places. And we opened this door and about passed out because there's just thousands of drawings in this room. And after opening up flat files, we quickly learned that these were some original cram drawings on original blueprints. Some were on trace paper, some were renderings. It was mind-blowing, and that was the aha, hallelujah moment. They found between five to 7,000 drawings and didn't have a lot of time to focus on their condition. But at the first chance, MCWB brought on a paper conservator to determine the most historically significant drawings so they can be restored. Then, MCWB sorted and organized the drawings by building and support surface, like is it paper or linen, and placed all the drawings in flat files in a climate-controlled building. There's nearly a complete set of drawings for every cram design building. MCWB also created a spreadsheet by building, outlining the collection by date and firm name, and type of drawing, like is it a structural engineering drawing, a floor plan, or is it an elevation? Before stirring Dr. Eileen Lang into the CRAM discussion, you should know that Eileen was the 2017 recipient of the Distinguished Alumna Award, nominated by her 1957 classmate, Carol McMurtry Fowler. And like Carol, Eileen tells it like it is, too. I always heard that the mark of a good teacher was that your students outstrip you. And I must have been one hell of a good teacher because my students have just done amazing things. I'm Eileen Lang, better known as 90 to many of my friends. I am the class of 1957. If you hear a noise in the background, it's my little Jack Russell Lily because she has to be part of everything I do. I had a rather checkered career having been a chemistry major at Sweetbriar. I became a medical chemist. And I worked for about seven or eight years during that, earning enough money to go to Europe. Stayed until I was broke. And that's how I got into art history, was seeing all the cathedrals and the museums and things like that. As soon as there was an opening at Sweetbriar, I jumped at it, came back to teach, and taught there for 30 years. I started the same year Howard Whiteman became president. I've had a good percentage of my life attached to Sweet Prayer. The good, the bad. <laughs> but it's, it is a wonderful institution. I ask Niney, what are the most important ways McBride aided in the building of Sweetbriar campus? Oh, 
bringing Cram, (laughs) Ralph Adams Cram, onto the scene. And then, I guess, promoting him and working with him, walking the land with Cram. He was right there from the very beginning. And he is the one who kept insisting on quality. So McBride and Cram had an opportunity to dream the ideal dream. They were not, as in Oxford or in Harvard or wherever, you have to work with them, it's already there. This was a clean slate. And Cram wanted the best of what he was designing. And Sweetbriar didn't always have the money to pay for the best. And so I think McBride probably sided with Cram more than the other members of the board. In mid-1901, McBride had been unanimously voted in as the first president of Sweetbriar Institute, but McBride wanted time before accepting. Then, for many reasons, he declined the presidency and stepped down from the board in January of 1906. I suggest reading the full Margaret Bannister article, if you're at all curious why. This left the board members little time to find a president. As a result, board member Dr. Carl Grammer made a trek to the Warrensburg Teachers College in Warrensburg, Missouri. There he met the professor of psychology, who was 31-year-old Mary Kendrick Benedict. Dr. Benedict, a Vassar graduate with a Ph.D. from Yale, would become Sweetbriar's first president. Niney and I discussed the reality versus the dream campus that Cram designed. Something I've thought about for a long time, and I wonder how other alums feel, Cram had an enclosed campus with buildings on the south side as well as on the north. And I love the openness to come out of the library and look down across that open sweep. I think is is lovely. But that's what I know. If I had only known the enclosed quadrangle, maybe I'd think that was the best too. Eric and I were talking about that yesterday. In some regards, not finishing the plan makes it almost more special, like you mentioned, because you would not have the view sheds that are there now. There was obviously a conscious effort to do as much as they could. Was it a money, financial concern? Dollars and cents have to work for college campuses. So in some regards, I'm okay with that. And it can be preserved and understood in the drawings that were discovered to really realize what it could have been. But again, maybe we this would have been a completely different conversation had they been built because we would not have those view sheds. And I think it's really important to maintain those now and to you know, energize them with features maybe from those original plans in, in different ways that are still in the language of Sweetbriar. probably was also less expensive because it it drops off so you would have had to have a lot of landfill to put those buildings there whereas by moving them down to where Guyon and Babcock are uh, they were working on a more of a flat plane. Prior to the 2001 centennial celebration of Sweetbar's founding Dr. Lang with Rebecca Massey Lane director of galleries at the time researched all things cram in preparation Along with other staff members, they searched for archival elements of Cram's design work to include in the Centennial Exhibition, 
and for the booklet, Sweetbar College and Ralph Adams Cram, Dreams and Reality. Rebecca and I went up to Boston. The Boston Public Library could not have been more helpful. They just gave us space and and opened everything up, and we pulled all the uh, linens out and looked at them and made decisions about what we wanted to use. And, you know, we had space considerations in the gallery. What's the most surprising discovery that popped up while doing your research? Hmm. I guess the most surprising to me was the presence of the letters between Cram and Miss Mita and um, and those early board minutes, which are quite extensive and a real jewel. Explain who Miss Mita is. Oh, Miss Mita was the third president of Sweetbriar. She was Miss Mita Glass. She had graduate degrees, but she was always known as Miss Mita, which I think is a function of the role of women at that time. So she was there maybe in the mid-20s, I think she came. Because she got the library built. Yes. Yeah. While Travis and I are together, I ask him to take a walk with me around the historic campus. Our first stop is the Mary Helen Cochran Library. We're standing outside looking at the individual elements in Cram's design. You can hear the water fountain spouting in the background. In terms of the architecture, it's you know coming out of very strict, symmetrical, classical design that is always based on form and proportion with details providing the variety. So, for instance, this facade here has got these very large Corinthian pilasters, uh, which gives it a little bit more refined and stripped look. A pilaster is a non-supporting rectangular column that projects from a wall. It gives the illusion of a column that's topped with a capital and footed by a plinth, which is a slab base. It works better as a pilaster instead of a round column when you get something that tall. If you were using round columns, they would have to have the Greek and Roman intasis, which is the diminishing proportions uh, from bottom to top. And the scale of this building is just too big for that. But... Cram is also finishing it out with the traditional Flemish bond brickwork with dark glazed headers. Can you point out what the dark glazed headers are? Yeah, uh, in traditional colonial and especially Virginia brickwork, this bond, which is called Flemish bond, is the most expensive and the showiest way to do a brick wall. So you have alternating stretchers, Headers, stretchers, headers. The stretchers Travis is pointing out are the bricks laid long ways, like most bricks are laid. The darker colored headers are the bricks laid with the shorter sides exposed. Travis says that Flemish bond requires more planning and effort while laying it to get the alignment perfect, going in both directions. And so this really does look like an 18th, early 19th century brick because... They're made in a traditional mold using sand to release the clay, whereas any other brick building in 1900 would have very slick, machine-made, modern brick. So they've gone to a great amount of effort. You know, there's the story that Mr. McBride wanted a yellow brick, and Cram 
you know, says, you know, I don't think that's right for Virginia. And so uh, they actually dig up some clay here on campus for the campus, send it to Virginia Tech, where McBride is the president. And uh, they get this nice red brick, which is more traditional Virginia. Travis and I are now focused on the elaborate stonework above the doorways. So the the other real giveaway that this is more English-Georgian are these doorways with all this carved stone. You would never see that in early America on Georgian buildings. And again, it's, it's just a more traditional thing in England where you had stone carving and you had stone to carve. But, you know, that's what Pram is doing to jazz up the building. We walk down to the academic building named for Sweetbar's first president, Dr. Mary Benedict. Here at Benedict, um, you can again see Pram pulling from some English prototypes. The arcade down below is not necessarily English, but the columns up above with the recessed wall behind is really kind of a nod to one of the most famous Renaissance Revival buildings in England, the Queen's House in Greenwich. And also the, the round windows up at the top with the four keystones, very English. So this is, you know, a more robust style because the columns are fully round. But they're shorter than the ones on the library and because of that, you can get the right proportions. And again, you have a little bit of carved stone with the keystone. And you have the entablature up above the ionic columns that's done in stone with the dentals and the egg and dart molding. And then it's capped off by the classical balustrade. And it still has the Flemish bond, just not with the uh, consistent glazed headers. Eric continues the Benedict conversation. It's not just this monument that's, you know, 12 stories tall or something. You can approach this building. These architects created these designs that were focused on proportions, creating these relationships of materials. And I think those are a lot of those key elements that were used in classical design. And it's just something that's completely missing and devoid from buildings built today. Unfortunately. Travis and I are now in the conference room at the Alumni House. I ask which is his favorite cram building on campus, and he says, that one right there. He's pointing to the large framed photo of the Ann Gary Pinnell Center, where the college's principal art collection is housed. Its original name was the Refectory. It was the dining hall until 1981, and it also served as the church for many years. Looking at the floor plan of the refectory's basement, you begin to fully understand the intricacies involved in feeding a lot of people on campus. Along with the kitchen and ovens below the main dining hall were more than 12 rooms, such as the refrigerator room, the bakery, the killing room, and the large storerooms for potatoes, wood, and coal. Travis shares his thoughts about the Pinnell Center's exterior details. It's got so many things going on on that little facade. It's a masterful combination of things. Uh, it's very 
much like a good Christopher Wren building from the 1600s, which is when English Renaissance is happening. Anybody looking at that facade would say English, not American. The Pinnell Center is located on the east side of the quadrangle. This is where one of Sweetbar's most lively traditions, step singing, takes place each fall and spring. Seniors sit on the worn granite steps leading to the former refectory's main entrance. These are the senior steps. The other students gather in class groupings around the seniors, and each class takes turns singing popular tunes with new lyrics. Songs vary in degree of friendliness, depending on the traditional class rivalries. The bell tower is one of my favorite cram structures. Before the bells were added in 1980, it was referred to as the cupola. That is really a, an exquisite little structure that's you know kind of showing off that English style. It's got perfect proportions, and it's got these four symmetrical elevations with the very large segmental arch and the dome. And this is very uh, English Renaissance revival. One of the jewels I found while researching was the importance of House One in Sweetbar's early years. Its construction was among the first completed in 1903, along with the powerhouse and the laundry. House One was designed as a boarding house, It housed construction workers and guests to the construction site, too. Before the refectory was completed in 1906, all the meals were prepared and served in House One. It also served as the infirmary for many years, as well as the home of Dr. Mary Harley. Dr. Harley was the campus physician and the professor of physiology and hygiene from 1906 to 1935. During an influenza epidemic in 1924, Dr. Harley cared for President Emily McVeigh at House One, along with two students who were also gravely ill. They all survived, prompting a grateful father, Walter Dahl, to head a campaign to raise funds for the building of a new infirmary. Among the many donors, Dr. Harley herself was a major contributor. Construction of the Harley Infirmary was completed in 1925. Now we swing back to Niney in the Mary Helen Cochran Library. Niney shares some stories of her favorite historic cram building. When I was a student at Sweetbriar, no air conditioning, and we were studying for final exams in the library, the windows open, and the pond out in front was all full of frogs. And the students complained about all the noise, and that's why they took out the pond. I'm not sure it went in immediately with the library, which is 1929, I think. Mm-hmm. It was really pretty. It was rectangular. It had, as I remember, it had uh, water lilies in it. So they probably took it out maybe in the late 50s, early 60s. It was not there when I went back to teach. 
And the other thing about the library, if you look at the drawings, it does not have any greenery in front. Cram didn't want that. You know, he wants to see the building elevated. But they planted box. And the box had gotten so big that when um, it was Douglas Harnsberger who was working there on the restoration, really neat guy from Richmond. And they saw, you know, what Cram had designed, and so they took the box out. And these were, I don't know, 30, 40, 50-year-old box. And I lived in House 9, which is the last house on Faculty Row. And they brought them down and replanted them as the road circles around there. So I could watch, you know. And almost all of them lived. And you have to give full credit to the grounds people because they came. It was all summer. It was not the best time to move box. And they came almost daily and watered. So, you know, that's the college evolving. Okay, they built the library. The pond was there. Then they take it out because of the frogs. And then when the situation changes and now you can do filtration and keep it clean, it goes back in. The box they put in front of the library, that was not exactly what Cram wanted. They took them out, but they didn't just throw them in the trash heap. They replanted them someplace else. And maybe that, in a way, sums up what Sweetbriar is all about. Moving with the times, advancing, but preserving what's good from the past. Before closing, we're going to take one more trip back in time to that day in June of 1906 when Dr. Mary Benedict first set foot on Sweetbriar's brand new campus. She arrived to complete chaos. The refectory, the academic building, and the first two dormitories were still unfinished, with classes set to begin in September. And at that point, it seems that there was only one student enrolled. So President Benedict, along with the board members, all rolled up their sleeves and began traveling near and far to speak with the parents of young women. By the time September rolled around, there were 15-day students and 36 boarding students from 12 states. Margaret Bannister wrote, and I quote in part, I have often wondered about those 36 girls, some from distant states, arriving by train at an open space, then driving through deep woods and pouring rain to buildings giving every indication of newness and rawness. No grass, no trees, and a sea of mud left by the builders. They had no traditions, no organizations, no precedents. They were isolated in the country, with no transportation available except the Southern Railroad. It would be easy to understand much homesickness and dissatisfaction, but nothing in the early records indicates this was so, unquote. While reading this the first time, my mind whooshed back to Sweetbar's first year. I imagined President Benedict with her students, those 51 adventurous spirits, actually sowing the seeds of true grit throughout Sweetbriar's red clay. This is the grit that seeps to the core of every Sweetbriar woman. And like President Benedict, President Meredith Wu arrived to campus with her very own grit. 
she puts it to full use while forging new paths forward for Sweetbriar. And these changes promote and uphold the stability of the college. They also provide new career paths for 21st century women. So here's to bravery and for taking leaps of all kinds. May Sweetbriar continue seeding grit in our students for another hundred years to come. I have many thanks to give. I'd like to thank Dr. Eileen Lang for her years of dedication to Sweetbriar and for her multifaceted perspective on CRAM and in Sweetbriar history. Thanks also to Travis McDonald for explaining the historical significance of Ralph Adams' CRAM and of Sweetbriar's historic CRAM campus. Thank you to Eric Kuchar for his thorough investigation on campus and his CRAM knowledge. And thanks to all at MESIC Cohen Wilson Baker Architects for their expertise focused on maintaining our Ralph Adams Cram treasures. And a million thanks to the alumni of the Pod Squad, L. Werner, Jane Dewar, Mitzi Morgan, Deanne Blanton, and Madge Faustine. Throughout the last year and a half, their edits, advice, and uplifting friendships have been invaluable. Thanks, y'all. Thanks to the 1992-93 to Sweet Tones for their rendition of the Sweetbriar song. I also extend my sincere appreciation to all at Sweetbriar who've helped make this podcast possible. And thank you for listening to Sweet Stories in the Dell. This is the final episode. It's been a complete joy to produce. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about the multitudes of people who have helped make and continue to make Sweetbriar the outstanding college it truly is. Take care.